with us today. I love all of you. appreciate you. Thank you for praying for me, and uh, we're going to have a good time in God's Word today. I don't know where you are in your particular uh, situation, but God knows right where you are. He knows every detail, and there are no accidents in God's kingdom. Uh, we, uh, we're, we're in His plan, you know. All things work together for good to those that love God and those who are the called according to His purpose. And God loves you. You just heard about that in song. And God demonstrated His love for you. And I think Judy said it, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What an awesome thing. So, we're going to be in Genesis 40 today. And the title of my message is, <clears throat> Tell Me Your Dreams. Tell Me Your Dreams. And you may wonder, where are you going with this? Well, you'll see um, soon enough. Hopefully, I'll figure it out before I get there. <laughs> Tell me your dreams. Uh, dreams are a big part of the Joseph narrative. There's six dreams in the Joseph narrative, and, uh, and that's going to be a key component of this message today. Now, last time we saw that Joseph, uh, he had been sold. You know, all these things are just, uh, just happening, you know. I mean, he goes after his brothers. Um, he leaves Hebron and goes to Shechem. Uh, brothers are not there, so he goes further to Hebron, um, Dothan, I'm sorry. He goes to Dothan, and lo and behold, there's a group of Midianites that just happen to be coming through on that, uh, uh, that, that, that highway, and uh, they're on their way to Egypt with their spices and their myrrh, and it just so happens when the brothers were eating lunch, they saw this caravan, they sold them to the Midianites, and the Midianites just happened to be going down to Egypt, you know, what a coincidence. That's where God wants the people to be, the children of Israel. And when they get down there, lo and behold, there's a guy in the slave market. His name's Potiphar. And he just happens to be the chief of the executioners, <laughs> the captain of the guard. And, uh, and he takes Joseph uh, home with him. And we see that Joseph prospered while he was there. Now, while he was in Potiphar's house, uh, he was seduced by Potiphar's wife. And we'll talk a little more about that today. But Joseph refused the temptation, and uh, he was subsequently put into prison. So we've got Joseph in Potiphar's house and Joseph in prison, but certain things remain constant, even though his circumstances are changing. In both places, the Bible says the Lord was with Joseph. You know, that's the most important thing is that God is with you. Now, I know God's everywhere. He's omnipresent. But you want him in particular uh, in your situation. You want to seek his face. Regardless of the situation. So he's with Joseph. Uh, Joseph finds favor with Potiphar. He also finds favor with the prison warden. Uh, Joseph is given authority over everything in Potiphar's house. Lo and behold, uh, he's given authority over all the prisoners in the jail. Um, the, the Lord, uh, excuse me, Potiphar was not concerned with anything except the food that he ate. And the warden is not overseeing Joseph in the prison. Um, in both instances, the Bible says that Jehovah, the, the covenant name of God, the Lord, was with him, and, and that Joseph prospered in all that he did. What an amazing young man Joseph was. God was with him. Uh, how many of you remember Carl Malone, the basketball player? He played for the Utah Jazz. Remember what his nickname was? The mailman, that's right. And uh, he, he had one of the funniest clips. You can probably find it on YouTube. Don't, don't do it right now. But... Um, they interviewed him, and they, and they never did win the title. They, they could not get past Michael Jordan. I hated that team, the Bulls. I hated them with a passion, and I was pulling for him. But, but they had finally got to the championship, and they were interviewing Carl Malone, and uh, they said, you know, you guys have, have suffered all these setbacks, but you finally made it here. And, and Carl Malone, he said, yeah, the cream do rise to the top. <laughs> the cream do rise to the top. And that's what we see with Joseph. The cream is rising to the top. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says it's like a cork. You push it down, but it just keeps coming up, you know. And uh, so we need God in our life. So we're going to be in, uh, in chapter 40 today of Genesis. And I'll ask Preacher Larry if he would pray for me before we get started. Amen. So chapter 40, verse 1 says, And it came to pass, I love that phrase, you got problems in your life, understand they didn't come to stay, they came to pass. It came to pass after these things. After what things? These things we just talked about. Joseph's been uh, promoted in Potiphar's house and then brought back down uh, into the dungeon or into the prison. After these things, now keep in mind as you read this narrative, we're only told two ages for Joseph. 
When we first find Joseph, how old is he in the story? Anybody remember? 17 years old. Good job. Now, next, uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll see Joseph as 30-year-old man. So you can reverse engineer and you can figure out that today, in today's narrative, he's 28 years old. Okay? So there's a lot of time that's transpired. You say, well, 10 years is not that long. Well, if you're in prison, it's a long time. If you're in, you know, if you're in the dungeon, if you're a slave, if you're in prison, 10 years is a long time. And, but keep in mind that we're not filled in a lot of gaps with this. We're just told that God's with him. You know? But I'm sure there's a lot of ordinary days. So it is with you and me. But uh, after these things, um, that the butler of the king of Egypt and his baker had offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Notice twice we're told that Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. Uh, there's going to be some interesting things, uh, little details in, in the narrative today. But this was a real crime. It says they had offended him, but it doesn't mean that he had hurt his feelings. You know, this was a serious offense. And some people believe that actually uh, there was a conspiracy uh, with these guys perhaps to murder Pharaoh. Uh, there was a lot of intrigue in those days and, and, and today, uh, I'm sure. But perhaps there was an attempt on his life uh, through his food or through his drink. Because he's got the cupbearer and the, the baker, the chief uh, baker here. So whatever happened, um, they had offended. Uh, and we see in verse 2 that Pharaoh was angry. King James says he was wroth. He was angry against the chief of the butlers and against the chief of the bakers. Now, these were not menial uh, offices. We think of a butler and, a, and, and we think of, uh, I don't know who do we think of when we think of a butler. Jeeves, you know, we think of some guy, he's, or Lurch, you know. Anybody old enough remember Lurch? But, uh, he, wasn't he a butler? I think he was. But anyway, th these, are, these are not menial uh, offices here. These guys are important. Uh, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. And they would have been in charge of tasting the king's food and drink. And, you know, and if somebody tried to poison the king, guess what? They would be on the front line. So it was a very important position, a trusted official. So he would know the ins and outs of the kingdom. And this would come in handy because sooner or later, Joseph's going to be the prime minister of Egypt. But he's learning all about this while he's in the dungeon. Uh, the chief uh, of the butler and the, uh, the chief of the baker's. All right, verse 3. It says, And he put them in ward, and we're told three things. In the house of the captain of the guard, into the prison. Oh, and one other important detail, it's the place where Joseph was bound. You know, These two guys, who are the most important in Pharaoh's cabinet, as far as his livelihood is concerned, just happen to be in the same prison that Joseph is. All right, verse 4. And by the way, do you think that those guys, that they did that intentionally? You think they thought, well, let's try to poison the king, and if we do, maybe we'll get put in prison, and we'll get in there with Joseph, because we've heard he's just such, such a remarkable young man. You think that's what they were planning to do? No. But God is behind the scenes, and he's orchestrating all of these things. All right, in verse 4, it says, Now the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them. Now, um, it's been a couple of weeks, I know, or it's been, it's been at least a week. Who's the captain of the guard? Potiphar. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, the Bible tells me so. James, you're going to help us out here. He's getting his vocal cords warmed up over there. Who's the identity of the, of the guard? Are you going to read that verse for us? Genesis, Genesis 37, 36. And the Midianites sold him into Egypt under Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. Captain of the guards, Potiphar. I know you like to have two witnesses. You don't want, you're not going to go on just one witness, right? So let's have one more witness here. Genesis 39, 1. There we go. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, who bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down hither. Now what does this tell you about Potiphar and Joseph's guilt or innocence? 
Well, after Potiphar's wife had seduced Joseph and had failed miserably, it says that Potiphar was angry, but it didn't tell us who he was angry with. Now he puts Joseph in the prison. He's got to do something to save face, of course. But notice that Potiphar, <laughs> he, and he's probably friends with the chief baker and the chief butler because they're all important guys. He's the chief of the executioners. They're in charge of the king's food. And so Potiphar puts Joseph in charge of these two guys. What does that tell you about Potiphar's thoughts about Joseph? He trusts Joseph more than he did his wife, I believe. You know, he knows that was a bogus story. He knows that that was a trap. So, um, and it says, notice the next thing it says, and uh, we're back to uh, Genesis uh, 40. It says that Joseph served them. The greatest way to overcome your misery is to get involved serving other people. Now, Joseph had a lot to be disappointed about. I mean, he could have he just moped around the prison saying, woe is me, uh, you know, deep, dark depression, excessive misery. I know I left out a few verses of the hee-haw psalm. He could have done that, but he chose instead to serve the people that, that were with him. But that's part of his nature because Joseph, as we've seen throughout the, uh, the narrative, he has a servant's heart. The first time we see him is when his father sends him to go check on his brothers. He's got to go about 50 miles to, to check them, to check on them. And this was a dangerous job for a 17-year-old boy to go uh, this far away from home. And his brothers are not exactly fond of him either, are they? Yeah, so who knows what's going to be holding. So, but what do we see Joseph doing in Genesis 37? Would you read that, James? Genesis 37, 13. And Israel said unto Joseph, do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said to him, Here am I. Here am I. I mean, he could have given Jacob a thousand reasons why it's not a good idea. I mean, you know, hey, Dad, these guys don't like me. Um, you kind of put me in a bad spot by putting the coat of many colors on me. It, things could go sideways, but he didn't. He just said, Here I am. He's a willing servant. Now, he's a prince. I mean, he's got the robe of his father. And he's got the dreams, you know, he's, he's God's anointed servant, but uh, he's, he's willing to do what, what's asked of him. Now, <clears throat> the next scripture up here is what we find uh, after he's sold into slavery, and he finds himself in Potiphar's house. And what do we find Joseph doing again? Genesis 39, 4, and Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand. All right. So we see no matter what Joseph's uh, lot in life is, we find him serving. Okay. Now let's go. It says they continued to season. Now verse 5. It says they dreamed a dream. They dreamed a dream. Both of them, each man his dream in one night. Each man according to the interpretation of his dream the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, which were bound in the prison. So again, we're told that they're, they're here with Joseph. Um, now, there's six dreams in this narrative, in the Joseph narrative. The first two dreams, who has the dreams? Anybody remember? Joseph, right? And there were two different dreams, but they had the same meaning. They both uh, showed that Joseph was going to be a leader and that his brothers were going to come and bow down. Now, next week, there's going to be two more dreams. And, and uh, for those of you that are Bible scholars, who, who's going to dream those next two dreams? Not the butler and the baker, but somebody else. Pharaoh, that's right. And he's going to have two dreams. And his, they're going to be two, two different dreams, but they have the same meaning. Okay? There's going to be a famine. Spoiler alert. There's going to be a famine. But today, there's two dreams, but they're different. There's a different meaning for each one. And each dream has literal uh, components to it. And each dream has symbolic aspects to it, as we'll see. So, <clears throat> verse 6. Joseph came in unto them in the morning and looked upon them, and behold, they were sad. You know? And if I were Joseph, I would think, well, who cares? You know, you think you've got problems. Look at me. Anybody got friends like that? You ask them how your week's, they ask you how your week's been. You say, well, I've had a really tough week. It's been a lot. And then they say, well, let me tell you about my week. And then they, you know, they've always got to one-up you uh, and whatever. Joseph could have been like that. 
He could have said, what are you guys so sad about? I mean, here I am. I, I've, I've, I've had three strikes against me. My brothers hated me, and, and I've been sold into slavery, and uh, my, my boss wife lied on me, and here I am here with you. I don't deserve to be here. But Joseph looks on them, and he asks them, he says, why are you? Or he, he noticed they were sad. Now, remember Joseph is a type of Christ in our narrative. So we might say it this way. Joseph is touched with the feeling of their infirmities. He's, sens he's sensitive to their needs. You know what? God cares about you. Joseph cared about those prisoners. He had no reason to other than the kindness of his heart. God's got a million reasons to care about you because he created you. He redeemed you by the blood of the lamb. And that's why Peter says we can cast all of our care upon him because he cares for us. Every need that we have, we can come to him with it. Every temptation, every weakness, every setback, we can come boldly to the throne of grace because we do have a high priest which can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin, hallelujah. And we can come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace to help. Here's the key phrase, in the time of need. When you need him, he'll be there. When you need him, he'll be there. All right. Now, verse 7, he asked Pharaoh's officers that were with him in the ward of his Lord's house, saying, Why do you look so sad today? Now, he didn't have to ask them that. He could have just been content to look at him and say, Okay, they're having a bad day. So what? I am too. It's been a rough couple of decades, you know. <laughs> not, actually, not two decades, but anyway. But he didn't do that. And I will tell you something, folks. No matter how bad you've got it, somebody's got it worse than you do. And if you focus on your problems, if you, if you zero in on your misery, you're going to be of all most men and women the most miserable. You know? But if you'll begin to say, thank you, Lord, it's been tough, but I thank you that I've still got this blessing in my life. You know? If you're able to get here today and to come and you were able to drive here, you ought to say, thank God I can still get here, I can still drive. If you're able to walk here under your own power, say, thank God I can still walk if, if you're in a wheelchair, say, thank God I can still roll myself in here. Uh, I thank God that I'm able to, to see and to hear. And I don't see as well as I used to, but I thank God that I can still see Brother H.T. over here, and he looks fairly clear. He doesn't look like a shadow. He looks like his old self. And, and I'm thankful that I can hear. I don't hear as well as I used to because I stood in front of amplifiers playing rock and roll and country for a long time. And I have to say, huh, a lot. And could you repeat that? Glory, but uh, so understand why I do that. I, I have I have issues. I'm not just being difficult, but I thank God. You know, it could always be worse. You could always have it worse. But he inquires into them, and they tell him why they're sad. They say we've dreamed a dream, and there's no interpreter of it. See, there used to be in an Egypt where there's interpreters abuku. I mean, this big business in uh, in Egypt, dream interpretation. Uh, if you do some research, you'll find out they had volumes of books written about how to interpret dreams. You know, and <clears throat> how many of you have ever had strange dreams? Maybe you had one last night. Yeah. I, I do. Most of them I don't remember, and, and some of them are jarring. But that was big business in Egypt. And they had all these books, and they said, well, you know, if you're, you know, if you're dreaming about a street or a road, then that means you're on a journey and so on and so forth. By the way, this stuff's not hard. I mean, and, and there was a lot of charlatans because, you know, you, you start to understand symbolism and, um, you know, I, I was dreaming about a lot of water the other night and, and uh, I dreamed about a river and, and, and I said, well, uh, it's either uh, rivers can be, uh, water can be trouble or it could be that I need to wake up and go to the bathroom, you know, <laughs> if I would dream about a bunch of water. I don't know. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of leeway in that kind of stuff. But God does give us dreams. He does. Not all of our dreams are from God. Some of the dreams are from Satan. Satan can give you a dream. Uh, some dreams are from God. And God, if it is from God, he'll reveal that to you. And he'll let you know. There won't be any, well, I wonder if this is God. I wonder if this is that. But most of the dreams we have, they don't mean anything other than we've, you know, we've been actively thinking about things, interacting with people, uh, engaged in certain activities, or we ate too much Taco Bell before we went to bed or Pizza Hut and, you know, you're dreaming about pepperoni and, and anchovies and stuff. But anyway, but they're upset that nobody's able to interpret the dream. 
and Joseph said unto them, and this is important, this is key to the narrative, do not the interpretations belong to who? God. Now there's two people in the Bible that are dream interpreters for Gentiles. Who are these? Joseph and who else? Daniel. And there's remarkable similarities between Joseph's story and Daniel's story. And in each case, the magicians, the, the astrologers, and the people of the court of uh, the, the pagan kings, they're not able to, to give the interpretation. But the Hebrews are able to. The Jewish people are able. They don't need interpreters. They are, they're able to understand the dreams. Okay, So be sensitive to that. So he says the interpretations belong to God. That means you don't need to search the horoscope to know what the future is. Because it's a bunch of baloney anyway. I mean, I don't know if you're going to go eat Chinese food today after we finish and convene here. And if you do, Lori and I, we always like to open our little fortune cookie. Uh, and we just laugh about it, you know. Don't look to the fortune cookie for your future, okay? I mean, I, if you want somebody to just tell you some gobbledygook, I can tell you some gobbledygook, you know. I can, I can tell you that if that's all you, you're looking for. Don't look to that stuff. Don't, and don't look to some psych, psychic hotline. That's, that's just big business. It's of Satan. It's big business. And you know what? If you call in there, they charge you per the minute. You say, well, how do you know, Henry? You've been talking. No, I, just, I know how it works. And they're going to keep you on the line. And you know what they're going to tell you? A bunch of stuff that you want to hear. You're going to get a new car. You're going to meet a beautiful woman that's half your age. And you're going to get a promotion on your job. You know, nobody calls in and, and they say, you've reached a psychic hotline. And he says, uh, yes, within five weeks, you're going to meet an ugly woman and fall in love with her. Uh, within six weeks, you're going to lose your job. And then within seven weeks, you're going to be in a bad car accident. They're not going to do that. Why? Because you're going to hang up. They're going to keep telling you what you want to hear. But jo uh, uh, Joseph said, do not the interpretations belong to God? And notice what he says. Tell me. Tell me your dreams. That's the title of my message this morning. Tell me your dreams. If anybody could have been bitter and sour about a dream going south, it could have been Joseph. Joseph's dreams not only had not come to fruition, but they had become the occasion for him being beaten by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into a slavery, brought down to Egypt in a strange place, in a strange land, working for a man whose wife tries to seduce him and fails miserably, and then for good measure throws him in the dungeon. If I was Joseph, I would have said, those stupid dreams don't mean anything. You just keep them to yourself. Don't be sad about dreams. But Joseph says, tell me your dreams. That tells me that Joseph still believes deep down. He still believes that no matter what's going on all around him, that God's at work. He said, I don't understand it, but I know God's up to something. I had two dreams, and now these guys have got two dreams. And I bet next week when we read about Pharaoh having two dreams, Joseph's wheels are really going to start to turn. But he's got these, these two guys here who are the most important officials in, uh, in Pharaoh's cabinet. They've got a problem. They've been punished, uh, perhaps for some conspiracy. And Joseph says, tell me your dreams. And he has the confidence, because he knows Jehovah is with him, He's got the confidence that God is going to give him the interpretation. Same thing happened with Daniel. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Nobody could interpret it. And I love that story because Nebuchadnezzar, he knew they were a bunch of phonies. Because he said, don't tell me the interpretation. I want you to tell me what the dream is. He called, her, he called their bluff. And he was getting ready to execute everybody. And Daniel said, wait a minute. Let me get my three Hebrew, Hebrew friends. And I always forget their names. Sister Karen knows them by heart. So I'm just going to call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's their Babylonian names. And they get together and they start praying. And guess what? God reveals the dream and the interpretation. And Joseph's got that same conviction in his heart that he's got a relationship with God and he's going to get an answer. Hallelujah. You and I need to have a relationship with God so that when we pray, we know we're going to get an answer. We're going to hear from heaven. Tell me your dreams, I pray you. Now, the chief butler goes first. 
He tells his dream. Now, he's eager. Now, the baker, he's not so eager to have his dream interpreted. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But the chief butler told his dream, and he said to him in my dream, Behold, a vine was before me. Now, we're going to see in this dream some uh, symbolism and some literal uh, interpretation to it. And notice the pattern of threes. He said, I saw a vine, and there were three, there were three branches. That's the first three. And it says, and it was though it budded, that's number one, the blossoms shot forth, that's number two, and the clusters brought forth ripe grapes. So that's the, th the third thing, the third thing that this vine did. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. And then there's going to be three things he's going to do. He takes the grapes, presses them into the cup, and he gives them into the Pharaoh's hand. Notice the repetition of the three here. Uh, in the Bible, three is often the works of God. <clears throat> and Joseph has no hesitation. He says, this is the interpretation of it. I love it. The three branches are three days. Okay, so there's your symbolism. The branch doesn't mean a tree branch. It means three days. Okay, so there's the symbolism. Uh, the symbolism. Now, verse 13, yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up your head. Now, that expression in Hebraic, uh, it means to take somebody from a lowly place and to bring them to a place of exaltation or to, or to bring them out of a, a negative situation. I think about the, the psalmist. He says, you know, you're the lifter of my head. Oh, God, I thank you that you're my shield, my buckler. You're the lifter of my head. That's an, a Hebraic expression. He shall lift up your head and restore you into your place. Butler's feeling pretty good right about now, isn't he? Dream's going well. And, and, and I'm inclined to believe that the butler's innocent of what he's been accused of. I'm inclined to believe that the baker's not. And that's why he's, he has some reserve, some reticence about getting his dream interpreted. But, but anyway, you should deliver Pharaoh's cup into his hand after the former manner when you were his butler. That's a literal interpretation there, isn't it? Whenever you're confronted with how to interpret the Bible, literally or symbolic, if it works literally, go with that. If it doesn't, then, you know, look for the interpretation elsewhere. But notice what Joseph makes a petition, and he has a fourfold request. He says, number one, think on me. Some translations will say, remember me. That's probably a good translation. Remember me when it shall be well with thee. Show kindness, that's number two. And the word kindness here is the Hebrew word hesed. That's God's love, covenant love. Show love and kindness to me. Number three, make mention of me to Pharaoh. And number four, bring me out of this house. So remember me, show kindness, make mention of me, and bring me out of this house. This is, this is not the first time Joseph has been in a pit making a plea. Remember earlier he was in the pit pleading for his life with his brothers. So here Joseph is again. He's in a tough place making a plea. And, and the commentators say, well, here Joseph is trying to be manipulative. I don't think so. I think he's just being human. And if we want to go with the typology here, there's an interesting um, sidebar, if you will. You've got the baker and the butler. One represents the wine, the cup, and the other represents the bread. And you have Joseph saying, remember me. Just, I'll just leave that there with you. Okay. Verse 15, he talk, and now he's rehearsing his story to the butler. And the reason I think is because he knows that the butler's innocent. He's been, he's been put in there unjustly. And Joseph feels like he's got a kindred spirit here. Because this guy's going to be able to relate to his story. He says, for indeed I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews. Now some translations will say kidnapped. It's, it's, stolen is better. I was stolen away from the Hebrews. Notice he doesn't talk about how awful his brothers are. Now, if the, I'm just being honest with you. If this were me, I would have been like, how, how much time have you got? <laughs> Let me tell you what Simeon did. Let me tell you what Reuben did. Let me tell you what Judah did. Let me tell you what Levi did. Let me tell you what all these brothers did. And a bunch of sorry scoundrels. He didn't do that. You know what that tells me? It tells me he's not bitter. He's already forgiven them. He's already forgiven. All he says is, I've been unjustly punished. And notice he says, I've done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon. Okay? I've done nothing worthy of death that they should put me in the dungeon. He has suffered unjustly. Now, 
Verse 16 starts this way. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said unto Joseph, I was also, I also was in my dream. Now he's not willing to say anything until he saw how it was going to go with the, the butler. What does that tell me? It tells me he's already feeling some kind of way about his dream. He's already feeling some reluctance. And it's probably because he's guilty. His conscience is hurting him. And he's wondering, if, is, it, is, it, is my sin caught up with me? And he says, I've got three white baskets uh, in my head, on my head. This, this was a typical way to carry food, you know, uh, in the ancient world, carry these baskets. And Joseph, I'm sorry, verse 17, and in the uppermost basket, there were all manner of baked meats for Pharaoh. Uh, the Egyptians were famous for their bakeries. Uh, they, were, uh, they were famous, for that, even to this day. Their confectionery, the, the bakeries and stuff, they were famous. There's all, volumes of books written about, about this. <clears throat> um, and it says, the birds did eat them out of the basket upon my head. Let me ask you something. Is there any symbol in here that gives you a pause that something may be amiss in this dream? The birds, thank you. Thank you. Now, in Egyptian culture, the birds were, uh, they were a, a good omen. The Egyptian god uh, Horus, his symbol was a falcon. But in the Jewish religion, in the Hebrew culture, birds have a negative connotation. So whenever you're reading the Bible and there's a parable or a story or a symbol with a bird, it's usually a symbol of something evil. Remember in the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham had to drive away the birds uh, in Genesis 15. And, and I could go on and on and on, but I, I, we don't have time for that. So anyway... Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation thereof. The three baskets are three days. So again, we have the symbolism of three days. Yet within three days, Pharaoh shall lift up thy head, but he adds another detail. This time the head's coming off. So what does that tell me? It tells me it's not symbolic, it's literal. And then he adds an extra detail. And he shall hang thee on a tree, and the birds shall eat thy flesh from off thee. Very interesting. Very interesting here. Uh, being hung on a tree is about the most ignominious kind of thing for a person. It goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. James, would you read that for us? Deuteronomy 21, 22. And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be to be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. So this is why the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that's why they're in such a hurry to get the bodies off the cross before the Sabbath begins. They're in, they're in a hurry because they, they don't want to break this law and bring a curse on the land. Oh my goodness, you know, the epitome of hypocrisy, right? They've crucified the Lord of glory, but they're worried about uh, minutia of the law. This comes into play later on. Uh, Paul is dealing with the Galatians and they want to go back under the law. They're, they're, they've become fascinated with circumcision and keeping of the feasts and all that stuff. And hey, that stuff's fascinating to study. I love the Jewish roots. Um, Brother Sam Nadler will be here in a few weeks, and I look forward to him uh, presenting. But listen, we are not under the law at all. And Paul's explaining that, and he, he explains to us why Christ... You ever wonder why didn't Jesus die by uh, beheading or by being stoned? Why did it have to be by crucifixion? Well, here you go. Galatians 3.13 and 14. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise 
of the Spirit through faith. Amazing. Now, Joseph, uh, he, um, if he wanted to make friends and influence people, he could have just told the baker anything. You know, I mean, he'd, he'd have been none the wiser. Just let it, let it be a surprise. But Joseph did not hesitate to tell an unpopular message. And I want to tell you this. If you want to be a true man or woman of God, you can't just tell people what they want to hear. You've got to tell them the whole counsel of God, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that's where we fail so miserably. We're a lot like ancient Israel. And uh, I've got a scripture here from uh, Isaiah 30. I'm going to ask James if you'll read this. And, and God is rebuking the people because they don't want God's prophets to speak the truth. And do you know nothing's changed? People don't want to hear the true prophet of God. They want to hear, thus saith the Lord, you're going to get a new car, you're going to get a new job, you're going to meet a beautiful man or woman, blah, blah, blah. And we're guilty of the same sin. Isaiah 30, 9 and 10. That this is the rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things. Speak unto us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Tell us what we want to hear. Tell us smooth things. We want to hear something that will just go down easy. Something we can just digest. We can just hear it and go our way. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> We're coming to a close. I know you don't trust me when I say that, but. I never deliberately deceive you. I'll put it that way. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, James, would you read verses 1 through 8? 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8. I charge you, therefore, before God, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears. And they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Praise God. Uh, Paul says the time will come when they will no longer endure sound doctrine. Guess what? It's here. You're, you're seeing the Bible come to fruition. Uh, what, people will say, well, are, you living in, are we living in the last days? And they want to point to earthquakes and famines and all that kind of stuff that happens in the tribulation period. I'm here to tell you that one of the major signs that we're in the last days is the apostasy of the church. That's one of the major signs. Is uh, no longer are we preaching truth, but we're just... Turn on so-called Christian television, and you won't get a whole lot of gospel. You'll get a whole lot of send your money here, send your money there, uh, how to be successful how to have your best life, how to, you know, how to be victorious. Not a whole lot of gospel, not a lot of cross, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, forgiveness of sins, and that kind of thing. Let's go back to Genesis 40. John Butler says this of Joseph. He says, in sonship, Joseph was faithful to Jacob. I'll put the quote up here on the PowerPoint. Oops. There we go. In sonship, Joseph was faithful to Jacob. 
In slavery, Joseph was faithful to Potiphar. In seduction, Joseph was faithful to God. In slander, Joseph was faithful to grace. In suffering, Joseph was faithful to patience. And here in speech, Joseph was faithful to truth. He spoke the truth, whether it was good news or bad news. That's John G. Butler. And that's the way you and I have to be, beloved. We can't just tell people what they want to hear. We have to declare the whole counsel of God. God is love. As that commercial says, he gets us. But we got to get him too. And that is one aspect of his character is love. He's also holy. And he's righteous. And he is going to judge the earth. And just as surely as there is a heaven to gain, there is a hell to shun. As surely as there is. All right. We're back to Genesis 40. And it says in verse 20, And it came to pass on the third day. Be sensitive to the third day throughout Scripture. I won't, I won't rabbit trail here. Just be sensitive to that. Things tend to happen on the third day. On the third, one little rabbit trail. On the third day, Abraham comes with Isaac to Mount Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice. And on that third day, uh, Isaac comes back from the dead in a figure of speech. Uh, Paul tells us that is a, man, a figure, a type. Uh, so Isaac comes back from the dead on the third day. He's a picture of the father and the son there at Mount Moriah. But, but be, be sensitive to the third day. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that's interesting. You know, there's only two people in the Bible that celebrate a birthday. You know who they are? Pharaoh and, uh, Pharaoh and who else? No, he didn't celebrate his birthday. Herod. Pharaoh and Herod are the only ones that celebrate a birthday. And both of them behead somebody on their birthday. Interesting. So if you got a birthday this week, I'm not coming down on you. I'm not trying to rain on your parade. Uh, I know, Brother Herman, you just had one. I hope it was the best one ever. Um, a lot of people will use that and say we shouldn't celebrate birthdays because Pharaoh and Herod, but that's neither here nor there. But just a little trivia for you. They're the only two that observed a birthday, and both of them killed somebody, had their head taken off. So I don't, I don't know what we're to infer from that. Uh, <laughs> just be careful on your birthday, I guess. <laughs> be, be careful. But anyway, <clears throat> Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast unto all of his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. Okay? So far, so good. They've both been lifted up. Verse one, 21, he restored the chief butler and his butlership again. And he gave the cup into Pharaoh's hand, just like Joseph predicted, because he's a true prophet. If you're a true prophet, the word of God will come to pass. That's the mark of a true prophet. If somebody's prophesying a bunch of falsehood and it don't come to pass, that's a false prophet. A true prophet, their word comes to pass. But what happened with the chief baker? Verse 22, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted. Okay? He was faithful to the word of God and it happened just like he said it would happen. And literally, notice the literal fulfillment of scripture. Prophecy, 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 prophecy. We went through the book of Revelation for a whole year and I know you're glad we're done with it. But one of the things that I wanted to stress to you, when you're reading prophetic literature, err on the side of literal fulfillment whenever possible because more often than not prophecy ends up being more literally interpreted than you even imagined to the most minute detail and here it is he hanged the chief baker uh, just as Joseph had interpreted verse 23 yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph remember Joseph had four requests remember Show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh. Get me out of this place. His first request was not granted. And neither would the other three be. He forgot Joseph. He forgot him. Well, I have James read a quote from him. This is a little short quote here. It's from a theologian from a long time ago when people were much smarter before they were doing crazy stuff. James Stalker, would you read that quote? Waiting is a common instrument of providential discipline for those to whom exceptional work has been appointed, James Stalker. 
Waiting is a common instrument of providential discipline for those to whom exceptional work has been appointed. You want to do a great work for God? Well, I'm going to tell you what, God's not in a hurry. He's not in a hurry. He's going to spend all the time that's needed to work on your character development. Now, we first find Joseph, he's 17 years old. At 17 years old, he's already displayed some giftedness. He's already displayed some wisdom beyond his years. He's already displayed an anointing of God upon his life. But he's not quite ready to be the prime minister of Egypt. And he's going to learn how to be the prime minister of Egypt in these 13 years in Potiphar's house and in the dungeon. He's going to learn how to serve in obscurity. He's going to, have to, learn, he's going to learn how to serve uh, minister out of his pain, out of his own suffering. He's going to have to learn how to uh, day by day pull himself up and do what's right, uh, being, not being weary in well-doing. That's why the Bible says don't be weary in well-doing, for in due season we'll reap if we faint not. There's something about doing the same thing, the right thing over and over that just wears you out. You ever notice you don't ever get tired of doing the wrong thing? I don't. I don't know about you. I never get tired of doing the wrong thing. I'm always up for, you know, somebody says, hey, you want to do something that's, that's not right? Yeah, I'm up for it. Let's go. I'm not tired. But there's something about doing the right thing day after day after day after day after day after day that just wears you out. Come into choir practice. You think, well, why do we got to get a choir practice? I mean, we can just get up here and wing it. Let me tell you, I appreciate, and, and they're not, I'm not here to pin roses on Ronnie and Sherry, but I appreciate the dedication. You know, we come in here on Sunday and, and they lead us into the presence of God, but I promise you, that didn't start 15 minutes before the service. It started throughout the week, and he's here early in the morning before any of us knows, before, long before I get here in the morning, praying and seeking God's face about it. And you see, if you're not faithful on Monday morning, by the time you get to Sunday, there won't be any anointing to do it. Preaching the gospel. You know, people joke around with me. They say, oh, you just work one day a week. Yeah. You hunt fish and golf the other days. And, uh, and that's just not the case. But I'm going to tell you what. If I don't start preparing and, and, and praying and studying and drawing on Monday or even Sunday evening sometimes, there's not going to be an anointed message on Sunday morning. There's just not. You've got to put time in and faithfully do the things even when nobody and especially when nobody's watching. Because who's watching? God's watching. And if you'll not be faithful in the little things, you'll never be faithful in the big things. If God can't trust you with some little assignment and to do it with, ex do it with excellence. You say, well, I'm, there, nobody can see what I'm doing. I don't, you know, I'll just do a, a, a half-hearted job. No, you do that little job with excellence, no matter what it is, and God will promote you with bigger responsibilities. But if you won't be faithful in the little things, you'll never be faithful in the big things. God was preparing Joseph. He was preparing Joseph for bigger things. He was preparing. Joseph is learning all about the ins and outs of Egypt from the chief baker and the chief butler, the two closest and no doubt from Potiphar too. And he's been learning all of the business. And, and next week, praise God, he's going to come out of that prison, but it's going to be two full years. Two whole years. Imagine Joseph's disappointment. He had to wait two full years. But everybody that God ever uses in the Bible had to wait. Abraham had to wait. He had to wait. John the Baptist had to wait. King David is anointed as a young man, but he had to wait. He had to be molded, you see. Giftedness is not enough. You have to have the character. And, God, and character development is not a fast process. It's slow, and let me tell you what, it's painful. It's painful. But God is going to do that work in you. Now, remember that all of this uh, is a type and a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus found himself with two notable prisoners on the cross, did he not? One of them was pardoned. The other presumably died lost. So I want to bring you to that last scripture here. James, would you read that from 1 Peter chapter 3? 1 Peter chapter 3, 17 and 18. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. 
For Christ also has once suffered for sins, just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Whenever you're tempted to say life is not fair, number one, it's not. God never promised that it would be fair. But whenever you're tempted to think that thought, I want you to remember that the most kindest, the most loving, the most beautiful, the most wonderful person who ever walked the face of the earth suffered unjustly. And Jesus didn't just suffer so that he could become the prime minister of Egypt. That's what Joseph was being prepared for. Jesus suffered what he did so that he might bring you and me into the kingdom of God. That, my friend, is a love that a human mind cannot begin to comprehend. Would you stand? Jesus came to this world. He left the splendor of heaven. He walked this earth for some 30, 30 some odd years. Born of a virgin, lived an absolutely perfect, sinless life, never did anybody wrong, never mistreated a single soul, never yielded to temptation, not one time. And yet for all of that, he was delivered over to the chief priest, the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, who handed him over to the Romans so that he would be crucified exactly as the scripture had predicted in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He died on the cross. He took the penalty. He became a curse for us so that you and I could be free. He was laid in that tomb, and he rose again the third day, and my brother and my sister, he is alive forevermore. And he is at the right hand of the Father. He is coming again soon. I do believe that. And you had better be ready. And the only way to come is by the way of the cross. You come as a sinner just as you are. The Savior is waiting, and he will, he will receive you with open arms. Would you come?